Let's pray one more time together. Just ask God to bless uh, our time together here. Father, we come before you now. And Lord, we just want to pause. And Father, we want to acknowledge that too often we have sought to be satisfied in all the wrong places and by all the wrong things. And so we acknowledge, Lord, our deep need to be content with God, to seek you, to seek your face, to bask in your presence, to know something of what Scripture means when it says, taste and see. And so, God, we pray now that you would give us a heart to go after you, to give us a heart to long for you, that you would give us a, a mind to apprehend you, and that you would give us a, a, a zeal to prioritize you in our lives. And so, God, we pray, Lord, that you would, that you would wean us off all other inferior pleasures, whatever they may be, and recognize that you are the fountain of life. And in your light, we see light. And so, God, we pray that... Uh, as we acknowledge that we need to be revived by God on a daily, weekly basis, all the life long, we are going to need to come back to the fount, back to the source where life is really to be found. And so we pray, oh God, that you would use this text, use this passage to magnify these things in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It has been said in the past that the danger for American Christians, American evangelicalism, is not in our persecution, but in our apple pie. That is to say that if there's one thing that we are not familiar with enough in this life, in this culture, is we're not familiar with suffering. We're, we're, we're not familiar with persecution, but we are all too familiar with convenience, with comfort, with leisure, with abundance. We have so many things at our disposal. Our lives consist of innumerable things. Uh, our possessions are too many. I mean, every, every holiday, every Christmas that rolls around, people are literally clearing out the old. You can see it in your own neighborhood. At times, people will throw away their old possessions, old toys, old, you know, whatever, uh, the old bike for the new bike or whatever. And it just shows us that we are so incredibly blessed in America, but sometimes those blessings can easily, easily become a spiritual curse because we lack to see our need for God. We don't have the capacity at times to even know on a physical level, what does it mean to hunger? What does it mean to really be thirsty? Uh, John Piper is famous in his book, Hunger for God, for saying that what Christians need in fasting, in the whole topic of fasting, is a little bit of artificial suffering. Because in America, we really don't know a whole lot of serious suffering like much of our brothers and sisters around the third world. But the reality is, is what we need is a desperation for God. Isn't that what you see in the words of the psalmist time and time again? As the deer pants after the brook, so my soul longs after you, O God. 
Where is our heart today with that? Or do we find ourselves day after day and week after week simply going around about our spiritual business? We've, we've fallen into a routine. We've kind of have this Christianity down packed. We know, what we're, we know what we do. We know the podcasts that we listen to. We know the books that we read. We know the sermons that we like to listen to. And it's just kind of average. John Piper in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professional, says, there is no professional seeking after God. That's right. It is that seeking after God is rooted and grounded in a spiritual life, a genuine spirituality that knows what it means to experience God. Uh, this psalm, the essence of this psalm is experience. And I know that uh, especially in reform circles, in high doctrinal circles, the word experience has become something of a byword. Right? We have, be careful with experience. But my friends, when you, read, uh, when you read the psalmists, why is it that, as some have pointed out, that sometimes it feels like, David Wells pointed this out, sometimes it feels like when you read the life of David, even though he may not have had as much revelation as you and I do with the gospel in the New Testament, why does it seem at times as if he knows God deeper than we do? I think it's because the psalmist, for all of his faults, particularly here David, for all of his folly, for all of his sin, for all of his shortcomings, for all of his failures, there is one thing about David's character that is worthy of universal emulation, and it is this, that he was not a professional Christian, but what he was is he was a desperate Christian. He was, a desperate, he was a desperate seeker of God. He longed after God. He sought, as he wrote himself in his Psalms, he sought the word of the Lord as, with great, as great treasure. And therefore, I think what he gives us here is something of the psychology, if you would, the anatomical makeup of personal revival with four elements Four characteristics that are rooted in this psalm, and they're these. It's very simple. The outline for us today is very basic. Tasting, hiding, fearing, and seeking. Let's begin right there. Tasting. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That is a, that is a call to the believer to experience more of God, uh, to worship God. And it really, if you go back to verse 1 of the psalm, let's kind of walk through some of it as we go through this. But this is David calling on the congregation to join him in glorifying God. Look, look how it begins. He says, I bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. That is something of what happens when a person is truly, genuinely seeking after God, desperate for God. You will become contagious, infectious. You will, be, you will want to draw others into the praise of God. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks in the same kind of Note, or in the same thought, I can read it to you, Romans chapter 15, as there you see the book of Romans and all of its magnificence, you go from scaling the heights of God's saving grace 
Romans 11 tells us all the depth of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. And David, in light of all of that grandeur of God that he has seen, page after written about, page after page after page, verse after verse after verse, he calls the church to a universal worship of God. He says, now may the God who gives perseverance, this is Romans 15, 5, the God that gives perseverance and encouragement May he grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with, watch this, with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same idea. Paul is calling the congregation, David was calling the congregation to worship the Lord with him, to exalt him. He knew that God's faithfulness to his life was unending, that God was faithful to deliver him from all of his trials. This was an incentive for him to praise God, to praise him for everything that God had, had done. And this is the way that the psalm really builds up. Uh, the verses that we're looking at, which is really verses 8 through 10, um, really these are sort of the high point of the psalm. Uh, this is really the whole heart of the psalm right here, uh, as David is going to give details on how to obey this call, this summons to worship. We really hit the climax here in these verses. This is the heart of the whole thing, experience. Uh, David wants us to move out of the realm of the theoretical, out of the realm of the abstract, and into the realm of intimacy with God. Do you have that intimacy with God? Do you know God in that intimate fashion? that he is to you the very bosom of your heart, that he is to you a friend that sticks closer than a brother, that God is to you your shepherd that has been with you your entire life. Do you have that intimate love and relationship with God? Or is Christianity for you merely an abstract exercise in theology and doctrine and ideas, concepts? Because that's not what David means by the metaphor taste. Taste and see. And the highest order of tasting is the experience that can be experienced through spiritual and salvific Christianity. To know God in a saving way. In other words, there is no higher form of spiritual tasting than to know God in salvation. Our souls were made to consume God. If we fail to internalize God's Word, God's presence, God's Spirit, God's Son, we will never truly be satisfied as we ought to. You know, in the early church of the Christian faith, the early church, uh, the, the first couple centuries of the church, this psalm was used as the communion psalm. They would read this portion of Scripture to commemorate the Lord's Supper. And why not? Since this whole, you want to talk about biblical theology, what we've been studying in Sunday school, since the whole biblical theology of tasting has advanced in Jesus Christ, who tells us, right, that his flesh is true food, that his blood is true drink, and that if you drink of other wells, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that he gives, you will never thirst 
Only God is meant to satisfy us, to nourish us, to build us up. We are settling for far too small a spirituality if we are not literally feasting on Christ on a daily basis. Listen, all of our learning, all of our theology, all of our doctrine, all of our books, all of our apologetical material is nothing but a means to a greater end, or it should be. Everything in the Christian life should be nothing more than an apparatus to get us to God. That's what books are for, to draw us near to God, to know God. The ladies in our church are going to begin going through the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And that's one of the things that Packer points out, that theology is for the purpose of knowing Him, knowing Him better, more intimately, and more truth having a closer, deeper, holier relationship with Almighty God. That's what we were created for. Now, the psalmist here focuses on taste and see. But what is the object of our tasting? What is sort of the savor behind it all? Well, right here he tells us, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants us to experience the benevolence of God. Brothers and sisters, do you know, there there could probably be nothing more important than for us to be convinced in our minds, truly, fully convinced that God is good. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than the beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but... From the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it for, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said, serpent theology right here. You ready? It's unorthodox, liberal, and heretical. Ready? He says to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the devil doing? In a very, in a very succinct stroke of diabolical madness, the devil has positioned himself in this way. Number one, God cannot be trusted. Number two, You can trust yourself more than you can trust God's Word. And number three, the devil is more moral than God because the devil is calling you to a superior ethic, which is do what thou wilt, not what God wilt. You see how insane Satan is, (laughs) right? Genius, but insane, right? But notice that at the very root of it, Satan didn't come to the woman and say, oh, you can't trust God. He's, he's a terrible tyrant. That's, he doesn't come out with that explicit sort of 
What he does instead is he questions the benevolence of God. He causes man to question whether God is hiding something from them. That is God keeping knowledge from me that is good for me? According to the serpent, he is. But my friends, this is why the psalmist is calling us to the most superior thing that we as believers can believe about God, or at least partly one of them. And that is that God is an omnibenevolent God. All that God ordains is right, the hymn says. Whatever my God ordains is right. Are you convinced of that? When the trial comes, when the paycheck doesn't come, when the popularity comes, when the pews are full and when the pews are empty. God is good and does good, the Bible says. We must be convinced that the God that we are pursuing, the invisible God that we do not see, is a good God. He intends good things for us. He has a good interest for us. He has good plans for us. He has a good purpose for us. So when he says, taste and see that God is good, the psalmist is saying, God is of a superior righteousness. He is of a superior morality. God is pure. And God is satisfying. And if you taste it, you know. I was at the Cheesecake Factory last night with uh, some friends. And we sat there for a moment. Have you, done, have you done this before? Are we getting cheesecake? You know that it is good. <laughs> Especially, you know, you guys probably have, what's that one cheese? My wife knows all the cheesecakes. I don't know any of them. I always order something boring. She gets something real fanciful. Tuxedo, isn't it tuxedo cheesecake? Brandon, uh, Landon knows it. I mean, he's got it all memorized. He works there. You know that the cheesecake is good. I mean, all you got to do is look through the little window there they have there, and you can see it. that cheesecake looks good. And some of you guys are like, stop it, you're making me hungry. But it will not be until you take that first bite that the goodness of the delicacy will instantaneously convert into from theory into reality. By tasting, you will know for certain that it is good. And so what is the correlation to the Lord? By trusting, you will know that He is good. Jesus said, you want to know if my words are true? Do the will of God. The proof is in the pudding. Step out on the water, Peter, and you will know that I have the power to sustain you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust Him with your whole heart. Lay all your weight on Him because He is absolutely reliable. You know, the background to this Psalm, I don't know if you go back to Psalm 34, but, and I don't know if you saw the superscription, which basically means the title of the psalm, but there scholars have pointed out that this is where uh, David had fiend madness. In other words, he pretended to be insane in order to get away from the king of Goth, Achish, because he thought, oh no, he's going to capture me and deliver me over to Saul, and that's that, since Saul wants to kill him. And so instead, he pretended to be mad. I don't know if it was the best thing that God would have wanted for him. But it just, if that is truly the backdrop, then what 
what, what David is saying is, God delivered me out of a very sticky mess. It was, it was embarrassing, in fact. Have you ever had God deliver you out of an embarrassing mess? God is good on the most practical level. God is good in His sovereign election and predestination and effectual calling and regeneration and the sealing of the Spirit. And He's good when you messed up at work. And He gets you out of the mess and He lets you have the job anyway. And you're reminded, God is good to me. Oh, I should have been totally undone. should have been fired. should have been done away with. You messed up in the marriage. You messed up in the, in the family. You messed up at work. You messed up with your neighbor. And God delivers us despite oftentimes our folly. Psalm 34, verse 6, listen to this. This poor man cried, and this is why some people say that's the backdrop of that First Samuel passage. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. This is important for us, brothers and sisters, because if you have not noticed, there is trouble, trouble, trouble everywhere. And if we don't have a good God that we can depend on, then we are in trouble. But we have a good God. Let's get practical. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Because the New, the New Testament takes this psalm and advances it in the sense of it gives us sort of the, the nuts and bolts of how do we do it? Peter quotes the psalm a couple of times. He does it here. He does it in, he does it in 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where you're going now. And he does it later in 1 Peter chapter 3 as well. But in 1 Peter chapter 2... He reminds us that there is a correlation between tasting and seeing that God is good and your ingestion of Scripture. I love this because it is not what it is not calling you to is go into your closet and wait for something weird to happen. <laughs> that is not at all what genuine, real, biblical, deep spirituality is made of. It is inseparable from truth. Look at what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, put aside all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn babies, we have some in here, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if... Now, you will do this. This is the nature of people who, who have tasted. See what he's saying? If you have tasted, and there he uses here a slightly different word, the kindness of the Lord, so that it is not an exact representation of the Hebrew, but it is an illusion and an adequate, sufficient parallel to what he's saying there. What he's saying there is, is if you have truly tasted, if you have experienced, see what he's saying? If you have had a salvific experience with God, then you have come in contact with the hot iron of God's glowing goodness, and you have been touched with the coal upon your lips, and you know that God is a good and holy and kind and merciful and righteous and gracious God. Therefore, get in the Word. If you don't get in the Word, I am terrified for you that you have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. 
It is a reflection that perhaps we have not tasted. What does that say about our devotional life, right? We may experience the goodness of God in and through His providence. God may provide you a job. He might save your children. He might heal your illness. He might repair a broken relationship. But it is His Word that confirms His goodness to us and drives it home. That's why you got to be crazy about the Bible. Let them call you a Bible thumper. It doesn't matter. I promise you in 100 years from now, that's not going to matter. You're not going to feel insulted anymore. You're going to be vindicated. Let them say whatever they want. Be about this. I had a young lady at UNT recently saying, you are brainwashed. I feel sorry for you. I said, well, in a sense, you're right. I have had my brain washed by the Word of God, and happily so, because it needed to be washed. It needs to always be washed by the Word of God. And so God calls us. He calls us to His Word to know His goodness. The fact that God is good also, brothers and sisters, also means that He is superior the fact that God is good also means that His satisfaction is incomparable. What can you compare it to? There is nothing better than our God. And what David, I believe, is what David longs for here is for the people to know it. Don't just say it because that's the Christian thing to say. Know it. Know that He is that good. Know that He is supreme, all-satisfying. What else do you call somebody who saves us from our sin? What else do you call somebody, Psalm 103, verse 4, who delivers us out of the pit? What else do you call somebody who grants to us the blessed assurance that we have peace with God through the cross? Only God promises to be everything that we need forever. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, At His right hand are what? pleasures forevermore. And it goes on to say in Psalm 36 that we will drink of the river of His delights. Brothers and sisters, are you ravished with Him? Intoxicated with God. His goodness, His glory, His beauty, the beauty of the King. Or are you still more impressed by the flickering lights of our culture? The shiny things that glimmer and glitter and sparkle here in this life. David Wells says, you yeah, notice, you know, you, maybe you got to be a little bit older for this, but you notice how everything's repeating? They're doing the same old shows again. We need, you know, Star Wars Part 152. We don't have enough, you know, zoom, zoom, whatever. You know, we need all this. We need to repeat it again. And every time Hollywood just got created, didn't you hear? They're doing Star Wars Part 152. What is that saying about our society? It's dying. David Well says, there is a cultural panic because we know our time is ending. And we're trying to salvage as much of the good old days as we can. Folks, God will not let us salvage the good old days. You know why? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31 says, 
the form of this world is passing away. Do you know that when Paul used the word, the, the, the passing or the form of this world, many commentators, including David Garland, 1 Corinthians commentator, he says, Paul took that from the background of the Roman theaters. That's the language, the same language that you would use to say one scene is over, another one is on its way. What is Paul doing there? I think what he's saying is don't get too connected to the opening scene. The best is yet to come. So don't find all of your satisfaction in this life. The best is yet to come. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus said, do not be afraid, little flock. It is your father, he says, your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. The word gladly, eudikeo, literally the theology of what Jesus is saying is that it is God's sovereign good pleasure, that's the word, to make us fellow heirs with his glorious end time kingdom, to make us citizens of heaven. It is God's good pleasure to enlist you into the city of God. Beautiful. He is good and does good. I said four things. I'm still on number one. Three, uh, two, three, and four will go quicker. This is number two. Not just tasting, but he also says hiding. Hiding. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. To hide, to hide, to hide. We are called to take refuge in him. God's goodness is understood, therefore, in the capacity that he has to shield us for life. To shield us from what? Well, a couple things. There's, a, uh, there's two aspects to this refuge theology. There's the Christological component, and then there is the eschatological component. First, the Christological component, because by the way, I don't know if you're picking up on it as you're looking through the Psalm, Psalm 34, this is Christ, 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 Christ everywhere, right? I mean, look at verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, a prophecy fulfilled at the cross. David, the greater messianic king, was preserved because he was the Pascal lamb and he was, as part of his righteousness, he could not have his bones broken. Anyway, just to show you, this psalm permeates with Christology. But from a Christocentric perspective, he's already introduced the Christology in verse 7. Did you see that? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So for the psalmist, he saw that the angel of Yahweh was his deliverer, his rescuer, ultimately his redeemer. Christ, if you think of the Old Testament, who through the theophanies, listen now, of supernatural manifestations, whether you're talking about a pillar of fire or the water that flowed in the wilderness, or angelic appearances as he 
encounters Jacob and wrestles him down to a point of divine dependence, or as he confronts Joshua and establishes himself as the captain of the armies of the Lord. A redeemed people knows that it is Christ who redeemed them. As a matter of fact, even in the Old Testament, Jude verse 5 tells us Jesus was the one who redeemed a people out of Egypt. Put that in your Christological theology, in your Christology, right? He will deliver us if we take refuge in Him. But by contrast as well, the righteous take refuge in God, but the wicked do not. Look at, look at Psalm 34, 21. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And here's the contrast. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So this is what is known as Hebrew antithetical parallelism. Same idea set in antithesis, antithesis to one another. Righteous, not condemned. Or really, the unrighteous, condemned. The righteous, not condemned. Why? Because we take refuge in Him. We take refuge in Him. And therefore, this is the eschatology of it as well. That like Psalm 1, verses 4 through 6, Psalm 34 looks forward to the final judgment, the final separation of the righteous and the wicked, the righteous and the wicked. The wicked fail to understand that there is an unbreakable righteous one who has the power to be a refuge for the brokenhearted. As, psalm, or as this psalm says in verse 18, he rescues the brokenhearted. He is a refuge for all that will trust in him. Now, I think Isaiah does the same thing. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, because I think Isaiah spoke of the same messianic deliverer that David did in basically the same way, in the same fashion. His ability to protect us. Isaiah 32, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 32, beginning in verse 1 says, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Now, verse 2, a little bit of a controversy here. How many of you have a King James? You have, I believe, the proper reading of the text. I know Tony's got a King James. That I know. I sound like, I sound like Donald Trump up here. That I can tell you. No, that's... I know you got a King James, right, Tony? Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> in verse 2, you'll notice that the word is, in most English translations, rendered, each will be like a refuge from the wind. And that is a reference back to the princes. But the literal Hebrew word is ish, which means a man. A man will be like a refuge from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen, which is messianic theology that is picked up in the Gospels, that he came to open the eyes of the blind, right? And so I think I agree with those scholars, 
which uh, Alec Mater is probably the number one leading uh, scholar on the book of Isaiah. At least that's the way that he's, at least I, I would say that. I mean, his commentary on Isaiah is uh, probably the best. And he says it should be interpreted as ish, one man. And therefore what he's saying is messianically. This is a picture of Jesus, in other words. That's what's so beautiful is that you can easily, easily translate this as Jesus will be like a refuge from the wind. So in other words, what we have here is a metaphor about the Messiah's ability to deliver us, to protect us. So, so, so in this metaphor, there is both a promise and a threat, right? On the one side, he promises to be a refuge in the wind of God's wrath from the storm. He promises to deliver us. He promises to protect us from the wrath of God, which is depicted there by the storms, the fierceness of the wrath of God. He protects us. This is propitiation. The wrath of God is averted. It is absorbed into the righteousness of Jesus where it is done away with. The penalty is paid. We have to take refuge in Him. But... On the other side, we also understand that if you don't take refuge in Him, if you don't go to Jesus for your safety, then you will perish because you are exposed to the lightning and the thunderclap of God's wrath. Revelation 19. To not go to Jesus as a refuge is to find yourself at the foot of Mount Sinai without a mediator. It is to find yourself in the ghettos of Egypt without blood on your doorpost. It is to find yourself outside of God's ark when the waters of judgment are rising to consume the pagan nations. It is to find yourself, as the Apostle Paul says, in the world without God, without hope. Dreadful. So if you will not flee to Him as a refuge, if you will not hide in Him, then by virtue of the fact that you are not in Him, you're exposed to judgment. The next thing is, it should lead us logically to the fear of the Lord. Hiding leads to fearing. And therefore, the psalmist says in verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him, there is no want. You see that? The fear of the Lord is a glorious concept in the Bible. Um, the psalmist uh, tells us, if you jump down to verse 11, that the fear of the Lord is something that should be taught. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That is what the fear of the Lord looks like. When you live in the fear of the Lord, you perfect godliness. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, please. Uh, because... There can scarcely be anything more purifying in the Christian life than the fear of the Lord. Now, 
Even the concept of the fear of the Lord has to be carefully understood. When I say the fear of the Lord, what I mean is the fear of the Lord is devoid of all malicious terror. The fear of condemnation. Now listen closely because this is this is a controversial issue, but I think it's clear in Scripture. The fear of the Lord is, 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 is pure. It is clean, the psalmist says. The fear of God is like the fear of a child to his father. It is the fear of chastisement, Hebrews chapter 12. It is the fear of disapproval. It is the fear of missing the mark so that you demean the glory of God, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. The psalmist points to this when he tells us to fear the Lord in that way. In other words, it is not fear that God is going to condemn us. Uh, Listen to this, folks. The day of judgment is not the day that God decides whether or not you go to heaven or hell. If you're a believer. If you're a believer... That was decided on the cross. That was decided at the moment of your conversion. That was decided when you placed your personal faith in Jesus Christ so that the day of judgment is not when God makes His decision. He made His decision a long time ago. Because if that was the day that God would decide that about you, then what is your blessed assurance about? No, 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 no. The fear of God is not the fear that God is going to condemn us and damn us to hell if you are in Christ. Instead, it is a a purifying fear, a sanctifying fear, a fear that we dare not offend a God who is so gracious, who has given us such magnificent promises that we dare not disobey for fear that we would displease and dishonor our loving Father. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Nothing. For, where are the, for, we, for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. You see that? And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then go into verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Watch this now. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The fear of God is understood in the fact that the loving, our loving Heavenly Father, listen to this, guys, He has made such astounding, breathtaking, altering promises that we dare not offend Him. That's what it says. It is in light of these glorious promises that He will welcome us, that we will dwell with Him. What are these glorious promises about? Look at uh, back at chapter 6. If you go back to verse Uh, uh, 16, he says, I will dwell in them. They will walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Now you understand, because I've taught this several times, several times, several times, that when that formula is used in the Bible, it is the redemptive apex 
of covenant theology. In other words, it is the climax of God's covenant relations with His people. That's why Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the, 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 the Apostle John, what, what he concludes is, 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 and he quotes that very concept, behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. Right? He will dwell among us, in other words. So what is, what is Paul saying? How magnificent are these promises that he's talking about? We are talking about God promising us the, the, the highest form of communion with God, the apex of fellowship with God. And once we know that God is welcoming us for that, He's inviting us into that relationship, there could be no greater invitation. And if we sin, and if we live contrary, which in Corinthians the context is idolatry, we join ourselves with idols and false religions we are insulting the spirit of grace on a level God has no other promise that He can give you. And therefore, we dare not and we fear that we might offend a holy God. Last thing, seeking. I love this word. Look back at Psalm 34, verse 10. He says, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of anything. So, so he makes an analogy here to hunger. <laughs> young lions, uh, what is he saying? We have healthy lions who know how to get their prey, right? Wouldn't you know a lion knows how to get his prey? You've watched enough of National Geographic to know lions know how to get their prey. And they're ferocious, and they're strong, and they have bones of steel and claws like daggers, and they can destroy their prey, and they can provide for themselves. But the psalmist is saying, look, the strongest among us, those who may, and, and commentators debate, is there some direct correlation between the young lions? Is that supposed to refer? One commentator said it refers to the wicked. Some commentators say it refers to the enemies of Israel. Okay, well, maybe it just refers to those who rely on their own strength for their provision. And, 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 and the Bible says that those who rely on their own strength for their provision, they may come to hunger, but those of us who seek the Lord... We will not be in want of any good thing. We will be totally provided for. I love the phrase, seek the Lord, because what it tells us, brothers and sisters, is we cannot be lazy, inactive, unfruitful, unproductive Christians. To seek the Lord means a direction in your Christian life. It means that you have a trajectory, you have a path, you have an ambition, and the supreme ambition for believers is to seek the Lord. To seek the Lord also means that you come into conformity to His will. You put Him first above all things. And so therefore, this idea of seeking, when it comes to the New Testament, no surprise here, has also been elevated in a Christocentric way, in a Christological way. In other words... Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, probably already ringing in your head. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, 
And all these things will be added to you. Same context. Provision. How often are we worried about provision in our own lives, right? Everything we do is so that we can provide, so that we have enough, so we can pay the bills, so we can, you know, keep up a standard of living. And Jesus is saying, seek first the kingdom. And all these things that you seek, clothing and every food and shelter and houses and jobs and everything else will be added to you. If God can feed His prophets through the ravens, He can feed, he can feed you through an unbelieving employer. He can do it. Sometimes for me, it is a great joy to admonish believers, quit your job. Let me qualify that. <laughs> well, I have work and you know this job demands a lot of travel and time and I don't really have time for church and I definitely don't have time for fellowship and small groups and I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't make it to Sunday school because I work and you don't understand and work, 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 work. Could it be that God may want you to find another job? so that you can put more of the kingdom stuff first. Huh? I mean, I think we're living way too safe in the Christian life in America. We're, li- we're, so, we're so pampered. Uh, I know I'm burying you. I'm going to dig you back up. Don't worry. But we are. Let's face it. A lot of times, we're very wimpy. We lack faith. We won't step out. We don't trust God. And this is all about trusting Him. If you seek the kingdom of God first, this is out of the words of our Lord. He says that out of the the mouth of our Lord, so do not worry about tomorrow. You know how sinful worry can become? We can make an idol out of anxiety. We can worry ourselves to death and become completely ineffective for the kingdom of God. It can cripple us so that we have no fuel for ministry, for loving, for reaching, for preaching, for teaching, for sharing with our neighbors. Each day, Jesus said, tomorrow will care for itself. Oh, it's so wonderful. Each day has enough trouble. <laughs> right? Stop worrying about Next week, tomorrow, next month, next year. Are you kidding me? Jesus said, if you only knew how much trouble was in one day, you would stop worrying about the future. The reality is, is boy, we don't understand, but that God sustains us and keeps us and he loves us and he's good to us. This is exactly where Israel went wrong. Israel forgot that it was the Lord who provided everything that they needed. Hosea chapter 2, verse 8. Israel does not know that it was I, says the Lord. It was I who gave to her her grain, her wine, her oil, who lavished upon her her silver, her gold, which they now use for Baal, God says. Therefore, I will take back my grain. I will take, he says, at harvest time, I will take back my wine in its season. And I will also take away my wool, my flax that was given to her for her nakedness. And it says, and I will uncover her. In other words, because 
Israel forgot their God. They forgot where provision came from. They became prideful. Hosea 13.4 I have been their God since the land of Egypt. Talk about redemptive history. God reminding them of redemptive history and what happened. And you were not to know any other God except for me. For there is no other Savior beside me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. And then this is what God's indictment is of Israel. As they had pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, they became prideful. This is why we have to hunger for God. If we don't hunger for God, we'll fill the void with something else and become satisfied with things that really don't satisfy us. And in the end, we'll become prideful. And we think we're self-sufficient. And Jesus, at times, has to rebuke us and remind us like He did in the churches of Revelation and say, no, in reality is, is that you're naked, wretched, poor, and blind. You don't understand. If I were to, but for a second, turn my hand, my favor, my blessing, my benevolence from you, you would have no provision at all. You'd have no clothing. You'd have no food. You would have nothing. So, brothers and sisters, we seek Him. And if we do that, we have the glorious promise that they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. That's not a promise that says He's going to give you all that you desire, all your wants, right? That's a, I know it says the word want, but the Hebrew is speaking of our needs, what we really need in this life. And you will be surprised if you peel back the veneer of American materialism how much you actually just need versus how much you actually want. <laughs> and so our prayer should be, oh God, Give us this day our daily bread. He gives us everything that we need. Finally, folks, I just remind us that when we make Christ our priority, the paradoxical miracle takes place that we find ourselves caring less and less and less for things that cannot satisfy us. The things that cannot last, the things that are temporal, that are passing away. Our treasure becomes not what, what can rust or what can grow old or what can be stolen from us. When we seek the kingdom of God first, we find that which is real life, eternal life, abundant life, because it is all find, found in Christ. And Paul says, Christ is your life, Colossians 3, 4. When we have Him, the reality is we will not want any good thing. We will not be in want of any good thing. Praise the Lord for His glorious provision. I guess the apple wasn't so bad after all. Let's pray. Father, Lord, so many things need to happen, Lord, in light of that truth, light of Your Scripture. So many things need to happen in our heart. You need, Lord, to help us to wean ourselves off of things that don't satisfy us. We need to learn what it means to put you first, to seek your kingdom and your righteousness first. Everything else will be added to us. You promise to take care of us when it seems like we don't even know how we will be taken care of. So, Lord, we pray, God, that you would make us those 
and believers that will prioritize our lives around the eternal, not the temporal. And so, Father, we pray, forgive us, O God, when we have failed to do that, when we lose sight of eternity, when we lose sight of what really matters. And, Lord, in the fact that we have to seek you, help us to be productive. Let us feel the weight of that rebuke. Help us to be fruitful. Help us to be productive in your church. Help us to be productive for your glory. Help us to be productive for the lordship of Jesus in the advancement of your gospel, in the upbuilding and the edifying of your church, and in the love that we are called to show to one another, Lord. We just want to be fruitful. We just want to be good and faithful servants who will enter into your joy. We trust that. We trust that you will do that in our lives, Father, by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.